0: And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Carl Gillett, Professor of Philosophy at Northern Illinois University. His new book, Reduction and Emergence in Science and Philosophy, is just out from Cambridge University Press. Are complex phenomena nothing but the sum of their parts, or are they more than the sum of their parts? Physicists, chemists, and biologists, including notably neuroscientists, as well as philosophers, have long argued on both sides of this debate between the idea of reduction and that of emergence. At this point, argues Gillett, the sides have reached a stalemate where it is difficult to know in what ways the sides fundamentally disagree about the nature of the the relation between a composite whole and its parts. In this ambitious book, he aims to break the stalemate by providing needed clarification about the issues that divide contemporary reductionists from contemporary emergentists, and he lays out the strongest positions that both sides should take. He uses his framework to provide a platform for future philosophical and scientific inquiry, to help reorient the debate towards fruitful empirical tests that might decide which view is more plausible in given cases. And he points the way towards new issues regarding the nature of collectives and the discontinuities and continuities in nature. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Carl Gillett. Are you there? Hi, Carrie. I'm here. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Great. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to have you on New Books in Philosophy. Um, you've presented us with a um, a very ambitious book that um, you know tries to end a stalemate. You know, in both philosophical circles and scientific circles, in terms of very long-standing debate between reductionists and emergentists. Um, uh, one of the ways you initially characterize the debate now. Um, is in terms of you know reductionists have this long-standing view about um, you know uh, a whole is nothing but the sum of its parts. There's sort of a uh, connection there between the idea of you know a collective is just its parts, um, and then the emergences view, which is you know had a sort of a, a, a much more checkered um, you know metaphysical philosophical history in terms of making an emergent view coherent. Um and, as you put it the 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 modern or contemporary emergentist view is 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 not quite that the whole is more than the sum of its parts, but more something like you know parts behave differently when they're in holes um so that's sort of you know that's the debate we're we're kind of in here um before we get into that. Can you uh, perhaps say a word about um your own philosophical background, um, and how you came to write this book.
1: Great. Um, So uh, I was actually going to be an electrical engineer and had a place at university to do that. Um, But then I kind of decided that wasn't for me, and I went into philosophy. And I was very lucky because I got a training with David Papineau in naturalistic philosophy, philosophy of science, general philosophy of science, Then I went off. I was really, really lucky to go off to Rutgers, Rutgers University, because I've always been interested in reduction in science. That's kind of why I got into philosophy. And I went off to Rutgers to study with Jerry Fodor, Steve Stitch, Barry Lower, Brian McLaughlin, because those were the people who were doing interesting work in philosophy on those issues. And I was still more fortunate because when I went to Rutgers, um, Brian McLaughlin was doing his kind of seminal. Um, work on British emergentism. And so I had a bunch of seminars with Brian um, on emergentism in the 20th century in science and philosophy. And that really, so then I developed an interest in emergentism as well as reductionism. Um, and that's really, those are the issues I've always been focused on. I wrote a thesis on physicalism, but it's all related, always been related to the reduction emergence issues in science.
0: Right. So, uh, yeah, I know the, you know, in, Uh, You know, in philosophy of mind, I mean, the idea of, you know, you have to reduce the mind, you know, we are, you know, again, we are nothing but neurons, you know, you see that in the in the neuroscience literature, you know, and then, of course, you get the the opposite view that that in some sense, we are more than just our brains, or, or, you know, that's a very crude way of putting it. But that is a way that it, it will appear in the scientific uh, literature, um, and the popular science literature. Could before we get into the details of the book again, could you mention one, uh, maybe one or two of, of current scientific debates besides the one that I just mentioned in terms of, you know, you and your brain, um, where the debate between reduction and emergence is, you know, currently sort of raging? Yeah, that's great. So that's
1: really a, a, a very helpful um, thing to us. So I actually completely agree about the neuroscience debate. So I think... In the background of those those larger um, uh, the larger research, there are programs in neuroscience from both sides so um, walter freeman is a is a very prominent scientific emergentist there's a whole bunch of other cognitive neuroscientists but other areas where you find the debates going on right now are in um, molecular biology we 've got a group of people who think that molecular biology is the paradigm of reductionism but We also have a bunch of people called systems biologists who actually argue for some of the most strongest and possibly most well confirmed scientific emergentist positions. In um, in physics, we have people fighting over um, superconductors. So in condensed matter physics, we have another group of scientific emergentists who argue that um, superconductors are emergent in a strong way, and they have a whole bunch of opponents. Um, Really, then the sciences of complexity are full of emergentists. So many people have argued that um, you, you social insects like ants and their colonies are emergent. And again, there's a bunch of people who offer um, alternative reductive accounts. So really from the very the lowest level sciences to the highest level sciences across all of these cases of what I call compositional explanations, so we have in all of these sciences cases where we explain composed entities using component entities. I call those compositional explanations. Mm -hmm. Wherever we have those kind of compositional explanation in science, we almost invariably have two competing groups of scientists who offer conflicting accounts of what those compositional explanations reveal about the structure of nature in those cases.
0: Okay, so um, uh, to pursue this just a moment, are there, you know, the scientists themselves i mean they're usually a pretty pragmatic bunch i mean they're they're interested in in getting another grant and and having practical you know uh implications or applications of their work um are there are there sort of practical implications depending on which which camp you know a chemist or a biologist or a physicist find themselves in
1: so so i mean one of the things that I should say about the book is we have these big debates now between these two groups of scientists, some who call themselves reductionists, others who call themselves emergentists. And as one of the problems in that debate is that they do give quite rich characterizations of their views across issues in ontology, about laws, about explanation, about methodology, and they have very conflicting views. It's interesting, they start from a base of agreement. They, they both groups agree we have compositional explanations. They both work from the shared assumption that, that that those explanations are important, but then they have these very different pictures of ontology, explanation laws. Now, one of the problems in the debate, and one of the reasons I, I argue we've got the stalemate because we do have a stalemate. These guys have been fighting since the 70s across all these areas. Mm-hmm. One of the problems is although they give us these rich characterizations, they're lacking precise theoretical frameworks on both sides. Mm -hmm. So they sketch arguments on both sides, but they don't have very precise formulations. They sketch ideas and key assumptions, but they don't have very precise theoretical formulations. Now, I suggest that people sometimes seem to think in these debates that more evidence, more data, more empirical findings are going to break the deadlock. Um, Now, the emergencies have been producing cases of emergence for 20 years, and some of them are extremely finely detailed in their empirical findings, and they haven't resolved um, the debate. I suggest, you know, the old scientific stories: is theory without data is blind, um, and data without theory is useless. And so I suggest what what we need is not more data. What we really need is more theory. And that's what I really set out to do in the book, is to look at these two scientific positions on their own terms and give charitable theoretical formulations of their arguments, ideas, and commitments, and then to assess whether or not either of them is viable or not, and see what the disputes are between them. And that comes back to your question. So ultimately, one of the things I do is I articulate these theoretical frameworks, and then I illuminate what I claim are the disputes between the two sides in these cases of compositional explanation, and I show how they are indeed empirically resolvable. But... As yet, neither of the side is really neither side has really appreciated the other side's position. So they haven't appreciated the disputes. So they haven't yet honed in on the the precise empirical issues. So I do try and offer a platform that so that we can empirically resolve um the debates over particular scientific cases in the future.
0: Okay. okay. Um so, well, compositional explanation. I mean, with the way you, you begin the book by by addressing the basic um, notions in the idea of composition, um, you know, parts and wholes. Um, um, and uh, you give an account in terms of what you call working components and uh, joint role filling. Um, can you just introduce us to these basic concepts, um, you know, how they appear in science and then how your, your own account of, of parts and wholes uh, differs from and improves upon um, prior, prior views. Yeah, so, so let, let me
1: step back a little bit from okay. that because I, I think it, it's helpful. So basically I think and argue in the book that philosophical approaches to reduction and emergence um, far from being helpful are actually damaging and they actually diverge from the scientific frameworks for reduction and emergence, which I think are closer to the, 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 the new contemporary issues that we all face. Uh-huh. Now, one of the reasons I think that that divergence has come about is actually precisely because of compositional explanation. So compositional explanation is ubiquitous and universal in the sciences. That's why the reductionists and the emergentists are, are taking it as a common base and moving on to fight over it because it is so important. One of the strange quirks of of late twentieth century philosophy has been that philosophers have really basically overlooked compositional explanation, and it is actually one of the ongoing um, i think problems in contemporary philosophy of science, especially but also wider um, philosophy that philosophers have for various historical reasons failed to to notice and offer accounts of compositional explanation. so in contemporary philosophy of science, the the um consensus view is that all scientific explanations of singular factor of n are causal or causation like. Now I think that's not what compositional explanation is like. So um well, I do spend a chapter looking at compositional explanation because you need to understand it and its features before you can move on to really engage the scientific positions. And I am saying some things that are at odds with kind of received wisdom um, in philosophy of science and in philosophy of mind, Mm -hmm. or metaphysics of mind. Metaphysicians of mind kind of started off engaging compositional explanation. So people like Fodor and Dennett were always focused on particular examples of compositional explanation. This is Dennett's picture of what gets you beyond a explanation. It's Fodor's examples that that drive his claims about multiple realisation But for for reasons I don't quite understand, neither Fodor or um, Dennett offered either a theoretical account of compositional explanation or an account of the compositional relations that back this kind of explanation. Mm -hmm. Because I take compositional explanation to be an ontic form of explanation, just as other people take causation to be an ontic form of explanation. It's a type of explanation that works by representing an ontological relation between entities in the world. Now, in the book... Because of these background problems, I start by just pointing to some um, examples of compositional explanation. And they're they're really not hard to find. So, um, for example, people might ask, uh, why did the um, diamond scratch the glass? Mm -hmm. Now, one answer you can give is, is is a form of productive or causal explanation. The diamond scratched the glass. Why? Because it's hard. But another kind of explanation that scientists also offer that takes... The um, phenomena as its objects is uh, so. Why did the diamond scratch the glass? Because it's got constituent carbon atoms that are covalently bonded. And then we can also. So there we explained a property, but we can give compositional explanations of process. Well, so let me let me do that again. So mm-hmm. we can explain why is the diamond hard because its constituent carbon atoms are covalently bonded. Mm-hmm. We can ask about a process. Why did the diamond scratch the glass? because it's covalently bonded carbon atoms, when pressed upon glass molecules, broke the bonds between the glass molecules and retained their relative positions. Mm -hmm. We can also give an explanation, what is the diamond? A diamond just is um, uh, carbon atoms. So in each of those cases, gave three different explanations of three categories of of entity. Gave an explanation of a composed uh, property, a composed process, and a composed individual. Mm-hmm. You can do it in other cases too. So uh, I, the other case I look at in the book is um, iron channels. Um, and, you know, one of the great advances uh, of the late 20th century was to provide a molecular account of um, voltage, the voltage sensitivity of ion channels. Mm-hmm. And we do that in terms of um, protein subunits and their properties. And we can explain why the ion channel has a property of being voltage sensitive we can explain why it opens, and we can explain what it is using uh, a relation to properties of the protein subunits and processes of the protein subunits so those are kind of that's the object phenomena of compositional explanation and then what I try and do is i I point out there are some distinctive features of the explanations, and I look at far too many features the relations that back the explanation. Let me say two things about the explanations. So one distinctive feature of um, compositional explanations is they have what I term piercing explanatory power. So in a compositional explanation, you always, almost always, explain something of one kind using entities of a completely different kind. So you explain a hard diamond or something that scratches in terms of carbon atoms, which it doesn't make sense to talk of as hard and processes that don't involve scratching. And in a a big way, I mean, this is one of the great advances of the scientific revolution to come up with compositional explanations because those explanations allowed you to pierce the manifest image of common sense, a world of hard objects which scratch and bump together, Mm -hmm. explain those things in terms of entities of completely different kinds. And, of course, we then went on to provide compositional explanations for the levels that are beyond common sense. So now we explain molecular phenomena in terms of still lower level and quality different entities. So I take an explanation that explains things of one kind using things of another kind to, be, to have what I call piercing expansion power. And Dennett pointed out a long time ago that compositional explanations have that. The other really distinctive feature of compositional explanation I, that I highlight in the book is that they have ontologically unifying power. So, um, take a different example: stomachs and their property, their process of digesting. Were for a very long time in the 19th century a really recalcitrant phenomena. We we couldn't understand how the pro- the process of digestion could be explained using um, molecular or cellular processes. So many people were vitalists. Where we where were talking about prominent scientists because they couldn't give compositional explanations. They posit a new energy, a vital energy. That the stomach has, and that energy underlies this process of digestion that they can't compositionally explain. So we have we have two kinds of energy, fundamental kinds of energy, the physical energies and then this new biological energy. But then, of course, we, we eventually do provide compositional explanations of digestion in terms of processes of cells and molecules. And what we do through that is with that we show the energy of digestion just is, in some sense, the energy of the cells. And molecules. The mass energy of the stomach just is the mass energy of its constituent um, uh, cells and molecules. So I call this ontologically unifying power. When we give a compositional explanation, we show how entities at the higher level just are, in some sense, the entities at the lower level. And more precisely and, and more particularly, we show how the mass energy of the higher level entity just is the mass energy of the lower level entities, and hence we do away with special forces and special masses and special substances. Um, Now that's a very big part of scientific progress in the 19th and 20th centuries. So these two distinctive features of composition explanation, piercing expansion power and ontological unifying power, unsurprisingly, they're mirrored in, in interesting features of the relations that back these types of explanations, so i don 't know whether you want me to carry on and talk about some of the features of the compositional relations
0: well you you give a, a list of about of about fifteen i think um yeah, we don't uh, no we, we don't need to do that, but maybe you could uh, give an example of one that's you know particularly important or, or frequently Yeah, so so
1: especially since you asked about what what do I think is wrong with the um the existing approaches in philosophy and criticisms of the existing approaches builds on the features I draw out of the explanations and the relations they back them so it's kind of important Um, let me just say briefly in the book I'm I'm committed to compositional relations between properties which I call realization, a compositional relation between processes which I call implementation and a compositional relation between individuals that I call um, constitution parthood. Okay. now I've already kind of um, pointed to why I'm committed to all three relations, because in our different we we compositionally explain all three categories of entity. I did that with the diamond Mm -hmm. and we back those explanations with um, relations between the different categories. So if you look at the actual compositional explanations, I contend you find um, scientists committing themselves to, to a composition relation between processes but also one between real properties and one between individuals. So I'm committed to three kinds of compositional relation between the different categories. They all come along together, and they're interlinked in, in complex and interesting ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they do have common features. So I'll only go through a, a handful of the features, um, and, and I should note there's a bunch more, and they're all kind of important to what's distinctive about compositional relations. First thing to say about compositional relations is is they they are they have the feature of being such um, uh, that they don't look causal. So they've got, they they are between relata that are at the same time, at the same place, and which don't, and with the, where the relata don't transfer energy to each other or um, exert forces on each other. They're relations that are such that the relata are in some sense the same. Now, of course, in some sense the same is a horribly, vague and nebulous notion. It's really where we're lucky because the scientists in these explanations concretize this notion of sameness in, in using mass and energy. I'll just stick to mass. So these composition relations in the sciences are what I call mass-energy neutral relations. It's a technical notion, but it just gets us to a very simple point. So I take a mass-energy neutral relation to be one such that the relata on both sides have have mass, but the overall mass of the relator on both sides is equal just to the combined mass of the the, the entities on one side of the relation. So what do I mean by that? Well, take the case of the, um, the ion channel. So we've got protein subunits which each have a mass. We have an ion channel which has a mass. But what's the, the mass of all of the entities? Well, actually, you don't take the mass of the ion channel and add it to the mass of the protein subunits. The overall mass is just equal to the combined mass of the protein subunits. Okay?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we see how these composition ex- relations are ontologically unifying because when they hold, the mass energy of the mass of the composed entity is shown just to be, in some sense, the mass of the, of the, the component entities. Okay. So the sameness is concretized in this mass energy neutrality, and also the same thing holds for force in what I call force neutrality elsewhere. A couple of other features. Um, Compositional relations are always relations of many one relations, where we have one composed entity, whether it's a property instance, a process, or an individual, and it's composed by many property instances at the lower level, many processes, or many constituent individuals. Third feature, which we've already talked about um, when we talked about the explanations, the relats are always qualitatively different. Diamonds are hard; carbon atoms aren't. Iron channels open; protein subunits don't. We could say, point out the same qualitative differences in the um, in the all the categories. Mm-hmm. So, so, there's a few few a few amongst the fifteen related features. Right. The reason yeah. I picked them out is. Um, the sameness and the mass-energy neutrality underlie the ontologically unifying power of the explanations. The many-one character of these compositional relations and the qualitatively different nature, the qualitatively distinct character of the relata underlie the piecing explanatory power of the explanations.
2: So,
0: so, so let me... Um, so a lot of the... Uh, I mean, I'd asked earlier about working components and and joint role filling. I mean, so so the working components there are – well, it depends, right? There's processes, properties, and individuals, right? Those can all be relata. Um, And then what about the joint role filling?
1: Good. So so let's just situate the projects. That's very helpful. So what I just did was just – I just gave a descriptive account – of a certain kind of explanation science, mm-hmm. and I'm making the claim it's an ontic type of explanation, so it's an explanation where you represent an ontological relation in the world, and that ontological relation's character drives the explanation. So we need to attend to the features of the ontological relation that's being posited in the explanations, and then I made a descriptive claim about the features of those relations that get posited by scientists. Now, that's a, in itself a, a whole set of substantive claims descriptively Mm -hmm. and you can challenge my claims about whether these explanations have those features whether the the relations they posit have the characteristics i listed but let's just take that that they do Mm -hmm. now we have a project so the project is well gosh given given the object phenomenon there are now differing accounts of the nature of the relation that backs the explanation and now we can assess so there are, there are all kinds of accounts in um, philosophy of these vertical relations. It's one of the hot- hottest topics in, in philosophy, not just philosophy of science, but in philosophy of mind and, and metaphysics. There are all kinds of accounts of vertical relations in, in various parts of the world. They make different claims, these accounts, about the character of those relations. So grounding accounts, say verticality, has one set of characteristics – In philosophy of science, we have what I call neo-causal accounts that take these virtual, vertical relations to be very like causation. And in philosophy of mind, we have a whole bunch of role-based accounts. Mm -hmm. We can now look at each of these competing accounts and assess how well they do by looking at how well they accommodate the features of the explanations and how well they do by accommodating the characteristics of the relations. I argue in the book that the best Account of the explanations and of their relations is joint filling relation. So joint filling it, so step one one take one step back. In all of these explanations and in, and across the sciences, it looks as if we individuate entities by their connections to processes. So properties are individuated by their powers, but powers are always manifested in processes. Individuate individuals are individuated by properties but those properties of in processes. So individuals and properties are all individuated by their connections to processes. I call an entity that is connected in this way to the processes it's involved in a working entity. And going back to the functionalists, I say that a working entity is individuated by its role, where that role is really going to be the processes it does or would um, uh, be involved in. Now, how, that's, how you spell that out is going to be different for individuals, properties and processes. And mm-hmm. uh, we don't need to get into the details because it's gonna get a little bit too complicated. But the basic idea is a working entity has a role. That's connected to the processes. Mm-hmm. So now we get to the idea of what composition is. And it's an idea you find in Dennett and Fodor. And basically the idea is that composition is a situation where a team of entities which are interrelated and hence coordinated because of their relations together fill the role of the higher level entity and hence are responsible for its existence. If something just is a role, if you're responsible for the existence of that role, then you're responsible for the entity that's individuated by the role. So the idea of joint role filling is we have a team, because remember we saw we always have many individuals involved in these compositional relations. We have a team that's interrelated and the activities, the things that it does, they do fill the role, the activity of the higher level entity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the idea of role filling. Now, why is it, why is joint role filling attractive? Well, I say it's attractive because it accommodates the features we went through. When you have joint role filling, it looks as if the energy at the lower level, the mass of the lower level, can you can see why the mass at the higher level, the energy at the higher level, just is why they are just one and the same. Um, you can also see how you can have qualitatively distinct relata. So, the entity at the higher level can have a different role than the entities at the lower level. The entity at the lo- lower level, none of them plays the role, the particular role of the higher level guy. Mm-hmm. They each have their roles, but the point is that together those roles fill the role of the higher level. So, we have qualitatively distinct roles. So, crucially, joint role filling allows us to understand how a compositional explanation could have piercing explanatory power, which I call PEP. As well as ontologically unifying power, and that's in contrast to the other um, the other candidates that are presently on the market um, in in philosophy, um, which we can go through if you'd like to
0: um, well I, I i want to um, get to the versions of reduction and emergence yeah, right. so so maybe that you've um, kind of laid out the the sort of metaphysical background in a sense of of the of the main topic um, uh, you know one of the one of the big points you make in the book is that um, current you know popular views of of reduction and emergence at, le- at least in philosophy and probably in science as well to the extent that they are articulated um, aren't the most viable um, they're, they're not the best um, and so there's there's sort of two separate you know c- questions there is you know what are the the popular views now of reduction emergence and what are the most uh, what do you think are the most um the most viable ones um so that's a, that's a pretty complicated question um but could you maybe characterize the the current views um and how of you know even if they're not the most viable the sort of current general view of reduction Versus emergence, and then and then we can get to you know the accounts that you think are the are the strongest version of of for both the reductionist yeah. um, and so, the emergentist. So I'm
1: not quite going to do that. Let me do something different related, which is in the background. Okay. So, so now we've under, now we have kind of a somewhat better grasp of compositional explanation that that we can see why in the sciences people are committed to what I call the scientifically manifest. Image.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that, but I wasn't sure where it might come in. So go ahead.
1: I think the most popular views, the wide, most widely held views in naturalistic philosophy, are reflections of the scientifically manifest image. So in the sciences, we have um, within a level we posit these causal and productive explanations that are backed by causal or productive relations. So you know, we we do we look around the world and we see that diamonds scratch glass. We look around the world and we find out that um, iron channels open. So we now posited individuals with properties, and they back very successful causal explanations. But of course, we see with compositional explanations, the scientists don't just stop with these productive explanations within, at, within a level. They then connect those explanations to lower-level sciences and their ontologies. So now we explain why the diamond scratches in terms of the um, the covalent carb the covalent-bonded carbon atoms breaking bonds between glass molecules. Mm. Now, what I call the scientifically manifest image basically takes these two sets of explanations at face value. So we've got the intra-level causal explanations, and we've got the compositional explanations connecting causal explanations to different levels. So what we end up with is a position that says... We have many levels of individuals and properties and processes that are determinative, but which are then composition explained by lower level individuals, properties and processes that are also determinative.
0: Maybe can you can have, say a bit about determinative, because so, that, that's, a, that's a very important concept throughout the book. So we have uh, what people call a layered or
1: le- level picture of nature or patches of it, which has many levels of individuals and processes, all of which are determinative. I just take I the way I use um determinative is I take an entity and I use entity to mean individual property or power or process. I take an entity to be determinative when it makes a difference to the to the productive powers, which I call powers of of individuals. So
0: makes a difference in what sense?
1: Uh well it's gonna to lead to them having different powers um basically. huh Okay. So What we've got is we've got determinative entities at many, many levels in this scientifically manifest image. Now, I take many scientists to be committed to the scientifically manifest image. Now, why am I calling it the scientifically manifest image, you know, kind of as as an echo of uh, of Seller's manifest image? Well, because it's the picture of the structure of nature that's manifest in these two sets of explanations, Mm -hmm. productive causal ones and compositional ones. Now, I take non-reductive physicalism of various varieties that are articulated across the back end of the 20th century in philosophy, so people like Foda, um, Partnum, and various others, I take them to be trying to articulate a position that's basically reflecting a scientific manifest image. So we have many levels of realized properties, each of which is determinative at its, its level, but... Is realized by properties of lower level individuals, which are also determinative, and so on. So the position that position is is non-reductive because it's got many levels of entity, and it's physicalist because it's got ubiquitous complete composition by of all the higher level entities in terms of lower level entities and dropping out into the entities of of physics. Now, the interesting feature of the scientific debates is that the target of the scientific reductionist is the scientifically manifest image. So the scientific reductionist is trying to show other scientists that they shouldn't endorse the scientific manifest image. The scientific reductionist thinks that they can show us, given our commitment to compositional explanations, we should only accept that the component entities in any case are determinative, and then there's a whole bunch of implications that flow from that. Now, that's a picture of reduction that's utterly different than the, the philosophical picture of reduction that's been dominant since, since, since the 40s. So the positivist picture of reduction was one that took its goals to be showing that higher-level sciences are, in, are dispensable and can be done away with, at least in principle, and which basically is committed to only one level of entities. The scientific reductionist, as I argue in the book, takes higher level sciences to be indispensable and takes there to be many levels of nature, but they claim to be offering a better account of those higher sciences and higher levels than the scientifically manifest image. So it's a very different um, kind of uh, position with very different goals and the kind of the standard philosophical picture of reduction.
0: Okay, so, um, well, maybe we should, uh, you know, get to the um the most viable positions uh on each side and we can you know kind of work our way through that through those issues um so you call the um you you give a number of different versions of of each um and uh you know some are weaker some are stronger some are better but uh y- you come out with um you know two that are uh, not Not just coherent um, right so there 's a number of of ways in which each of the positions can be articulated more or less coherently but even uh, even among the coherent ones um, uh, there are some that are just simply um, stronger, the most viable could you Could you say what those you know sort of best uh, yes. know, the best on each for each side is?
1: I mean, we, so we do need to do this kind of sequentially. Otherwise, um, sequentially is going to allow us to kind of allow,
0: allow us build to build up to. Yeah, that's yeah,
1: fine. So. so let's carry on with the scientific reductionist. So the scientific reductionist starts with compositional explanations, and they give us what I call the argument from composition, which is a quite a simple parsimony argument. It's an argument that people have been attracted to since the Buddhists, um, in, in you know many thousands of years ago. So the Buddhists basically were notice the following. Gosh, you know, the cart is composed of wheels, axles, and boards. So why, you know, he, they gave arguments that we shouldn't accept both the cart as well as the component uh, axles and boards.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was a parsimony argument using what they call the um, uh, the, the principle of lightness, but is basically a version of the parsimony principle. Now, we've seen that we've got these compositional explanations that use these much more sophisticated... Um, compositional notions, but th- they're basically committed to the same kind of picture. As I just suggested, we've got this joint role-filling idea. Now, the reductionist says, um, once you see, once you have a compositional explanation, you can explain why the ion channel opens using the um, properties and processes of the protein subunits. But then they say, and this is the crucial subconclusion, they, so they say, so when we have a compositional explanation, and when we have these relations of composition, we can account for all the higher level uh, phenomena, as well as the lower level phenomena, because of course the protein subunits also explain what's going on at the lower level
2: Mm
1: -hmm. but we have two hypotheses about the entities that exist in the case of compositional explanation the first hypothesis, which is the one that the scientific manifest image is committed to is that we should accept that there are both the composed entities and the components but the reductionist is committed to another hypothesis that we should only accept that the components exist or are determinative but if we accept the parsimony principle that you know we should always accept when we have two explan- equally explanatory hypotheses we should ex- accept the one that's committed to fewer entities well given the subconclusion right the subconclusion was that once we have a compositional explanation we can explain everything higher and lower levels using the components alone Mm -hmm. so now we know these two hypotheses are equally explanatory so parsimony says that we should accept the simpler one which is the one the reductionist favors so we should accept that there are only components Mm -hmm. in any case of compositional explanation now of course being a little bit more careful you can accept that in a stronger form that you could accept that only components exist or you could accept that only components are determinative Um, so I, I just work with the, the, the claim that components, are the only things that we should accept as a determinative are the components. So we get an argument that holes are nothing but their parts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, now that, that's what I call the argument from composition, and that's, that's, a, that's an argument from the explanations that both sides accept, compositional explanations, to the conclusion that really we shouldn't accept um, composed entities at all. Now, you might think that that commits the reductionist to a picture of nature as only involving one level um, or only being committed to sciences that should study components. But I argue in the book that's actually not what they say and that the position they can and should hold is indeed one that says there are levels to nature Mm -hmm. and that we need high-level sciences. And that, in fact, high-level sciences, even given the claim that only components are determinative, high-level sciences are indispensable for expressing truths. Let me just say briefly just a little bit about those two aspects of scientific reductionism because they're really quite they're in contrast to kind of standard philosophical pictures.
2: Right.
1: So the first thing to say about the reduction the scientific reductionist ontology is I say they're committed to what I call a collectivist ontology. So I take a collective to be an interrelated group of individuals and of individuals. Now the reason the scientific reductionist is committed the collectives is that in any case of composition and any case of compositional explanation, you're always using a collective at the bottom level of the explanation. So the covalently bonded carbon atoms are interrelated individuals. The protein subunits are interrelated individuals. They're collectives. Given the reductionist is accepting and using compositional explanation to drive their position, what they're left with is are collectives. So what they're committed to is an ontology that accepts not just isolated, unrelated components, but collectives of them. I call that a collectivist ontology. And what the reductionist goes on to to argue is that there are levels in nature. And what do they mean by levels? They mean different scales of collective. Because when we come to um, things like uh, organisms, we have vast, vast collectives, not just of um, of microphysical particles, but cells. Mm-hmm. So the reductionists, I, I, I articulate in the book, they can give a very sophisticated picture of the levels of nature as involving s- different scales of collective. Now, they don't take collectives to be new individuals, and they don't take them to have new properties and powers, because, of course, they've they've argued there are no further um, properties, powers, and individuals beyond the components. So a collective just is an interrelated set of components, and the only things that are determinative are the components. But nonetheless, it's a truth about nature that when those carbon atoms bond, something new exists, a collective. And so there really are collectives as well as isolated components.
0: But whatever whatever properties um, emerge, I mean, I don't mean to load the deck there, but... Um, whatever properties occur or, or are possessed by the collective, those, those do not constitute new causal of powers. Is that the idea? Right.
1: So there are no properties of collectives and there are no because they're not individuals and there are no powers of them. They don't produce anything. What I point out in the book is you can accept that they have collective propensities. So collectives, those big interrelated groups of individuals, do behave together in certain ways. So I call those collective propensities. Mm-hmm. An interesting feature of these collectives is that although they might differ in the, in the element, the, the component individuals that are elements of them, there are commonalities across the collectives. And so that gets us actually to the second point. So I give an account of why do scientific reductionists say that higher sciences are indispensable? And people like uh, Stephen Weinberg do do say that we need the higher sciences they do say that they're indispensable and in the book i give an account of why philosophers find it very strange that a reductionist should say that higher sciences are indispensable because they're locked into this semantic picture of reduction comes from the galen that they've been working with but here's the the very brief account that i give of one reason that um people like Weinberg say that higher sciences are indispensable these vast aggregations, these vast collectives, together often behave in common ways. Now, that's a fact about nature. So it's, it's a, so we, we have, say, a, a, a tooth crushing a grape as well as a filling. But a tooth and a filling, each of them just is a vast collective of interrelating atomic and molecular entities. Mm-hmm. But those collectives differ in their members. Now... So just of-
0: their, but the crushing... Uh, the tooth it, crushes and, and that's not some is that so, so that there's no actual well you you tell me right, right. is that a, is that a new causal power or not
1: no there's a common common behavior that these two collectives share when their members act together, which we call crushing a grape now, if we try and capture that commonality using the predicates of um molecular atomic or um physical sciences all we're going to do is articulate the differences because the, the components, the elements of the collectives are different and the, the, and the lower sciences describe that. So what we need is a new predicate to capture the commonality, the common collective propensity, the common joint behaviors. And so that's what people like Weinberg say higher science predicates are doing. They're expressing collective propensities, commonalities across collectives that differ in their members and there is a truth there to be expressed. So that's an argument I give in more detail, obviously, in the, in the book, about why higher sciences, why scientific reductionists, even though they're complete ontological reductionists, should accept that higher sciences are indispensable for expressing many, many truths about nature, as people like Weinberg say. So the position we end up with is distinctive and very different from philosophical positions, or many philosophical positions. It's an ontological reductionism, well, it's a thoroughgoing semantic anti-reductions,
0: right? Okay. I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to. I mean, there's, there's a lot to pursue there, but let's, let's uh, get the emergentist uh, comparison there.
1: Yeah. So, so one way to get to the emergentist comparison is you might ask, well, surely people, why do we need to talk about emergentism? Because philosophers, philosophers rebutted reductionism a generation ago. People like Fodor and Putnam and Kitcher offered two kinds of argument that blow reduction in science out of the water. So the first argument is the multiple realization argument. The second argument is the predicate indispensability argument. Now, in fact, both of those arguments in philosophy of science against reduction are arguments against the Nagelian semantic picture of reduction. The problem that those arguments um, for reduction have is that the ontological reductionist accepts there's multiple realization in nature. I just gave you a case they accept that you've got um, uh, you've got uh, things that we commonly describe as uh, uh, teeth and fillings that share a property that we commonly describe as a certain knoop hardness, and they accept that knoop hardness is differently realised in the two cases. So they accept multiplicity of realization. They give a different understanding of what it comes to in their ontology. So they accept both the premises of the multi realisation argument and its conclusion, and it just doesn't touch their position. Mm-hmm. They also accept the indispensability of higher science predicates. So that argument doesn't touch their position. So one of the reasons we actually need to look at um, emergentist positions is because philosophers of science haven't arg- offered any argument that touches the scientific reductionist um, um, position. Furthermore, the positions committed to compositional explanation that people like Fodor have always endorsed. So it's a real challenge um, to their positions. So there's a, there, there's a there's a there's a there's a need to engage emergentist views because they're the only ones that seem to be directly engaging this scientific reductionist position, which they've done in these broader scientific debates. Okay. Now I, I distinguish four notions of emergence, and other people distinguish 26 concepts of emergence. There are many notions <laughs> of emergence, and we probably don't even want to go through. Um, four of them no
0: we, we don't have time actually
1: yeah so in the book um i go through these different notions of emergence and i ask the question which of these notions of emergence um would serve to rebut the scientific reductionist and i give various arguments that, that most of them don't work and the only one notion of emergence has even a chance of offering um some challenge to the reductionist's argument from composition and parsimony reasoning. Mm -hmm. So that's what I call um, strong emergentism. So I give a criterion for strong emergentism. So a strongly emergent property, and I do it for properties, a strongly emergent property is a property that's realized, composed, but which nonetheless is determinative. Now, notice that's what um, the reductionist claims through their argument, parsimony argument. They They claim that they've got an argument that no such property can exist. If we've compositionally explained a property, they claim we've given a reason why we should only accept that the components exist and are determinative.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if the argument of composition is basically an argument that you can never have strong emergence. It's something like square circles. Okay. Now. Well, not the-
0: not quite. Well, square circles one thing, but but um, the idea that you you shouldn't be ontologically committed or anything to. Uh, you know, crushing as a, as a causal power isn't it isn't quite the same thing.
1: Um, there's different strengths of argument that people give. The past may help. You're right, not quite all the way up to It's logically impossible, uh-huh. but it is. You're right. It's something that we shouldn't accept, given 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 the things we're committed to. Okay. Oh, all right. Now, in the sciences, now philosophers have done, I think have done terrible disservice to the, the emergentists in the sciences. What people have done, um, and I go through some examples in the book, what they've done is they basically they endorse the argument from past money or versions of it, and then they say, well, look, we've got these good ontological arguments that whenever we have composition, you can't have or you shouldn't accept a determinative composed entity. Mm-hmm. And then they go and look at these emergentists who say, well, we do have composed entities, and they are still determinative. And then they say, well, they can't really mean what they say. And then they go on to charitably reinterpret the scientific emergencies. But the problem is they don't engage a number of these folks' quite rich ontological ideas. So that's what I try and do in the book. So I'll talk a little bit about – so people like um, uh, um, Laughlin in condensed matter physics, people in systems biology, all these other guys we talked about, Mm. they offer a very sophisticated array of ontological commitments that they draw out a very particular kinds of cases. These are cases in the sciences where we don't just have qualitative accounts of components. We now, in recent work, have got quantitative accounts of components in simpler systems and in the complex systems where we have composition. Now, the reason why this is important is in in, in these more complex cases, the emergentists claim that we find that the components... So let's stick to properties again. We have properties of components that contribute powers to those components that they don't contribute in simpler systems. Now, that's to to coarse a characterization that happens because even the reductionist accepts that um, you have um, contributions of powers in cases that you don't have in other cases. So I sharpen that notion up in the book. So what I think the scientific emergentist is, should be committed to and is committed to is the following. It's the idea that in these complex complex collectives we have properties and components that contribute powers that they wouldn't contribute if the laws in system, simpler systems exhaustively applied to these more complex systems. Now I call this kind of power a differential power because it's a different power. It could be, but there could be Further powers, or there could be um, subtractions of powers that that are different than what you'd get if the laws in simpler systems apply. Now, what's the big deal about these differential powers? Well, the big deal is that the, the emergentist then offers a further claim. They claim, the scientific emergentists claim, that it's the composed entities that determine the contributions of these differential powers by the component properties of the components, mm-hmm. and so. I go into kind of detail, but the crucial idea is, gosh, here's a way for the composed entities for holes, even though they're completely composed. here's a way now in which they can carry on being determinative sure they let's let's ignore the fact that they're contributing powers that that determine processes at their own level. What they also do is they determine that a component property contributes a certain power to it, component individual. Now, it looks as if that role, that that potential role in nature, has been missed by the scientific reductionists and many philosophical reductionists. So what I do is I say, in that type of situation, it looks as if we have full composition and yet the whole is still determinative. Now, of course, you have to be careful because the reductionist says they've given an argument that this isn't Something we should accept. So I go, I look in, in a chapter, I go through a more detailed characterization of this type of situation, and I ch- claim to show that such a situation is indeed coherent. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if such a situation is indeed coherent, so I say, let's assume that we have um the whole, let's assume we have differential powers. And let's assume we have this whole, which is determining the contribution of differential powers by its components. Let's see if that situation is coherent. I go through its details, and I argue it is coherent. And a whole bunch of things follow from the coherence of this type of situation. Now, let me just stand back and say um, one thing. This type of determinative relation Mm
2: -hmm.
1: between the whole and the components... Where we determine the contribution of differential power is a is a different species of determination relation than floss most philosophers ever are uh, um encompassed so we saw that um we've got productive causal relations that operate across time and um between in the wholly di- distinct entities mm-hmm. we saw we have composition relations between entities that are not completely different and um which don't involve transfer, energy, mediation, force. It was role-filling. Well, this new further determinative relation isn't causal because it doesn't happen over time between wholly distinct things. It happens at a time between things that are not wholly distinct. But it's also, it's not causal or productive. But it's also not a compositional relation because the whole just can't fill any of the roles of its components. So what we've got is not a role-filling relation. So what it looks, I suggest... It's a role-constraining relation. The whole constrains or fixes the roles of components. So we need a new name for this relation of determination from a whole, a composency to the parts, its components. So I call it macresis. Mm-hmm. Now, so what we've got, we've got, uh, a, we've got a commitment to differential powers, we've got a commitment to macresis, and we've got a commitment to a particular kind of picture of aggregation that I won't talk about. Let's talk about the implications. One of the big implications of this this type of scenario is that the parsimony argument that the scientific reductionist offers, what we called earlier the argument from composition, which is a kind of parsimony argument that's endorsed by most philosophical reductionists, is actually an invalid argument. Why is it invalid? Well, go back to this parsimony argument. The argument... The key sub-conclusion of the argument was when we have a compositional explanation and we have a compositional relation, the, key, the claim was we can conclude from that the key sub-conclusion that we can, ex- we can explain or account for everything at the higher and lower levels solely using the component entities. Mm-hmm. And now we can see in the scenario, if it's coherent, that that's actually an invalid inference. It's, it is the case that everything is composed. Everything at the higher level has a role that's filled by entities at the lower level. Scientific composition concepts apply. But it's, nonetheless, it's not the case that you can account for everything, explain everything solely using the components. Because the point is that there's a feature of the components that you can't only explain by positing the composed entity, the differential powers. These components are contributing differential powers which lead to new behaviors, and they can only be accounted for explained by positing the composed entity but,
0: but these aren't differential causal powers
1: um they're differential productive powers, so yes, they're powers uh-huh. to produce new behaviors so if we maybe so I just sketched particular theoretical um, examples because all of the concrete examples are in dispute, but these guys, so um so um the scientific emergence claim so so um the example I give in the book uh, involves um uh forces. So we have a bunch of components at the lower level that each exert random forces in a in a, a forces of a certain small magnitude in random direction. Then the complex they exert forces in a preferred direction. That's the differential power that they exert the same magnitude force, but all in the same direction. So, the whole is supposed to be determining contribution of that of that of those new powers. Those are powers to make changes in a certain, in a certain direction. So they are productive powers.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Uh this This may surprise you, but we're actually out of time oh. um <laughs> uh so it's it, it, somewhat abruptly i mean where where there's there is i mean the book itself is 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 full of of lots of interesting arguments and details and um we've only got into just a the a tip of the the iceberg so to speak um hmm. But if you know, if you could maybe wrap up what you're what you're talking about, and then um, and then perhaps say a word about what what you are working on now. What's next for you?
1: Well, we're on chapter seven. Yeah. <laughs> so we say we've got eight, nine, and ten to go.
0: Well, that's but, not gonna happen. That's right.
1: So, but let no. me just, let me just give a little picture. Um, so uh, elsewhere, I blogged on the book on the brains blog. So there's a whole bunch of blog posts going through the chapters we've gone through as well as the ones we haven't gone through. then um, the remainder of the book, I, I outline how there is a version of scientific reductionism and an argument for it that isn't invalid. So what we end up with are, there's a version of scientific reductionism as well as this live version of scientific emergentism. Mm-hmm. So this emergentist position isn't just important for showing that the reductionist argument is invalid. It also offers us a picture, which is coherent, of of a nature where we have compositional relations and explanations. Mm-hmm. So in the latter chapters I go through these two positions, which I th- argue are live. I go through a bunch of other positions which I show um are actually not live given the arguments we've gone through. Mm-hmm. And then I try I link um these abstract positions to concrete cases of compositional explanation. And I show how the two positions do have Differing empirical um, implications. So I, I ultimately show how the two sides, the reductionists and emergentists, are differing over empirically resolvable issues. So these are substantive matters, mm-hmm. and I outline how you can empirically resolve the disputes. Mm-hmm. Lastly, in the final chapter, I go through six concrete cases where people have fought in systems biology or quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. and I go through why, as yet nobody's resolved the the, the disputes that are are the deeper ones Mm -hmm. in any of these cases. But I also point out how in many of these cases we look as if we do have empirical evidence which, when sharpened using these better theoretical frameworks, could indeed resolve the disputes. So I do claim to offer a platform for more productive scientific and philosophical research in the future.
0: Very good.
1: That's in the rest of the book, but it's not what I'm working on right now. Well, what, and what? So, what is that? Before we, before we. So right now, um, and this explains why I probably too too long talking about compositional explanation and scientific composition. Right now, I'm finishing off with a book with Ken Azawa, which is about compositional explanation in science. Mm-hmm. So that book engages um, the consensus views in the philosophy of science that all singular explanations causal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We point. At, we give concrete examples of these compositional explanations, and we have a number of variety of of types of compositional explanation. We show that in detail that these explanations are knocked back by causal or causal-like relations. So there's an exciting project in philosophy of science.
0: Excellent. Um, What's
1: the the explanations? What's the relations? And we seek to answer those exciting questions.
0: Very good. Well, it's... I, I... Have been apprised of that work. I mean, I've I've kind of followed it to some extent, um, and I, I look forward to seeing uh, what what comes out of it. Um, but uh, for the moment, um, I think we need to to end this conversation, um, and I look forward to uh, future conversations about your work.
2: Great,
1: thanks, Carrie. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for talking about the book.
0: Thank you very much. You've been listening to my interview with Carl Gillett, who is professor of philosophy at Northern Illinois University. We've been talking about his new book, Reduction and Emergence in Science and Philosophy, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast and thank you for listening.